Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Again, this is still Tzvi Hirschfield. It's still my privilege to be studying Torah with some of the best and brightest that Pardes has to offer. And today, I think Rabbi Michael Hatton, you might have taken the lead as the most appearances on this podcast. You've actually got a double Parsha. You've got a double workload to handle this week with Vayelach and Nitzavim. And welcome. So nice to see you. Thank you for welcoming me. So here we are. We are starting to close in on the close of Sefer Dvarim. Time flies. And it's interesting. I feel like we're in a transition point in the book, and you're going to fill us in on that. But the first third, I felt like Moshe's speech was about getting the people to understand the past how God has related to them in the past, and how they have to learn from their experience in the desert moving forward. And then we had this middle section, which was very focused on law and the hierarchy of leadership, prophets and kings, and the Sanhedrin, right, the great court, and a lot of review of mitzvot, especially Parshat Ki is rich with lots and lots of mitzvot, some that we knew already, some that are new to us. And now I feel like we have finished Parshat Ki Tavo, also rich with mitzvot, and now we are transitioning into sort of the final elements of the book. What do you think about that take? I think there's a tripartite division, as you pointed out. This last section of the book is the sealing of the covenant, the Brit between God and the people of Israel, and of course, they're poised to enter the Promised Land. So having reviewed their history and learned, hopefully, from some of their experiences, having reviewed all the mitzvot in preparation for entering the land, there's really not much left to do for Moshe except to restrike the covenant between God and the people. You know, it's very interesting. It sometimes occurs to me to think, like, how come it always needs repeating? that the idea that we have to always come back to this covenantal relationship. And I'm wondering, just if you have any thoughts on why you think this covenantal relationship seems so hard for the people to really internalize, that it always needs to be reinforced. I think every kind of covenantal relationship is difficult because it requires commitment, it requires devotion, we make mistakes, and as a result of those mistakes, distance can be introduced into the relationship and we have to somehow recover. So it seems to me that covenant isn't the moment in time, but it's an ongoing idea that speaks to what it is to be in serious relationship. I don't know if you'll agree with this statement that there's this underlying anxiety in the book, this anticipation of how difficult it's going to be for the people to realize these goals, that Moshe is urging them on, and there's this sense of, this is going to be very hard for us to do. There's an inevitability to some of what Moshe shares, in the sense that he sees the people of Israel ultimately falling away from the covenant, succumbing to idolatry. I mean, between you and me, it's not surprising. The people of Israel are entering into a space that really has nothing monotheistic about it, and they are asked to hew to some kind of an ideal that absolutely no people in antiquity were keeping. So there's this idea of this balance of you can do this with this awareness of it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to do this, right? There's this optimism and 
pessimism sort of woven in together throughout Moshe's whole speech of both trying to encourage, trying to get us to believe we can do it, at the same time, almost for future generations to look back and realize that the failures are not shocking or unexpected because what we're trying to do is so difficult. But maybe that's what the profound message is, that the covenant is something which is ongoing because there are going to be slip-ups, there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be failures, but that's not the end of the world, as we have an opportunity to recover whatever it is, and perhaps even to grow from it, and to do better the next time around. Okay, so I shouldn't feel too discouraged is what you're saying. That's always what I'm saying. All right, that's actually very helpful. I do get easily discouraged. So let's hone in. I know you selected a passage, and maybe you'll share a little bit of the passage that you are going to note for us, I believe, that it's particularly moving and important, especially with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur right around the corner. Tis the season. The Parsha of Nitzavim begins with the people called to a covenant, and Moshe makes clear that the covenant is for all generations. And as you pointed out, he also makes clear that the people are probably not going to be able to live up to it, and there will be consequences. I think one of the most important ideas that Moshe presents in this entire book is that we make choices in life. And those choices have consequences for the better or the worse. I mean, that is the essence of the human condition on some level, certainly according to the Rambam, who argues that, you know, freedom of choice is what it is to be human. So that's a really important opener, I think, for Moshe to present to the people. And so he sees the people falling away, but he also sees them recovering. And in this recovery, he describes how when all of these things will befall the people of Israel, the blessing and the curse, you will literally return to your heart among all the peoples whom God has scattered you among. And you will return to God and you will hearken to his voice. And he goes on with this theme, and it's actually quite lengthy. We're not going to analyze it now, but this Parsha that describes the people of Israel ultimately returning to God is full of optimism. It's full of inspiration. And Moshe sees a bright future ahead in spite of this series of inevitable failures. And it ends with this passage, when you hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to follow his commands and his statutes that are written in this Sefer Torah, when you return to God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and that seals it. What follows is a very short paragraph, which seems to reinforce the idea, and it's the paragraph that I want to focus on today, Tzvi. And as we're going to discover, there are always different ways to interpret it. And this is what it says, Ki ha-mitzvah hazot, this mitzvah which I command to you today is not too wondrous, too miraculous, not too distant. Lo hi. It's not in the heavens as if to say someone has to go to the heavens in order to fetch it for us. It's not on the other side of the sea, as if to say someone has to cross over the sea in order to fetch it for us so that we might do it. This thing is very close to you. In your mouth and in your heart in order to fulfill it. You know, it's a very powerful passage and it really speaks to this question of, but it's so difficult, this covenant is so demanding, we're only human. And here Moshe comes along and says, it's not out of your grasp. 
I know it looks like it's out of your grasp, but it's not out of your grasp. It's like the the central motivating speech that everybody who is looking to grow or improve confronts, whether you're starting a diet or an exercise program, or you've decided you're going to take on Dafyomi, you know, whatever it is, or you're going to try to spend more quality time with your family, whatever change you want to make, there's always that voice that says, oh, come on. You're not going to be able to do that. You've never been able to do that. This is something that only other people can manage. This is too big for you. You know, you're overreaching and you're going to fail. That voice, you know, that that pasuki karov lecha, it's near to you. That is the framing verse of the Balatanya, right? When he's describing this whole process of how we can actually live a life without sin, right? We become the Benoni who has thoughts of sin but never acts on it. And his driving message is, you can do it, that this is doable. Failures are not inevitable. You actually are empowered to live differently. And I feel like that message is so central to us. For sure. At a moment like this, when the people are really on the cusp of entering the land and confronting new challenges that are going to be overwhelming, at least some of them, this is what they have to hear. You know, they will have difficult moments. They will have setbacks. They will have failures. Call that... The book of Judges, call that the book of Samuel, call that the book of Kings. It's a constant theme, but there is this possibility, and maybe it's just as inevitable that the people of Israel will recover. And it's not impossible. Correct. I think that's our number one excuse, right? It's not that we don't think it's the right way to live. In all things, our excuse is, I'm just not up to it. I am who I am, and I can't be that. Only very special people can be that kind, that patient, that giving, that devout, that learned. You know, I can't do that. That's beyond my grasp. And here Moshe is saying, no, it's not beyond your grasp. So there's a very interesting machloka disagreement between the Rishonim, the early commentaries on the section, what exactly Moshe is referring to when he says this mitzvah is not too far off, not out of reach, not in the heavens, not on the other side of the sea. What's he referring to? What is this mitzvah, ha-mitzvah hazot? Especially because it's in the singular, it's strange. You'd expect him to say maybe this Torah or whatever he might say, that this mitzvah could be read as like something singular, it's one thing. Correct. So Rashi argues, I guess it is one thing, but it's the one thing that incorporates everything else. Rashi says the mitzvah that's being referred to is the mitzvah of Torah, the mitzvah of learning, the mitzvah of comprehending the Torah. That's what's not too distant, and that's what's not too out of reach. Kya mitzvah hazot refers to the mitzvah of Torah. Which I guess it makes sense. It's sort of saying, how am I supposed to know what God wants from me? right? God is mysterious and transcendent, and how could I possibly figure out? And so, from Rashi's perspective, Moshe is saying, no, no, God gave you a Torah, and through that Torah, you indeed can figure out how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to be. It is not this mysterious, cloudy thing that no one could figure out. And it's accessible. It's accessible to all of us. That's really his point. That's also a theme in Sefer Dvarim and in the Torah as well, that the Torah belongs to all of us and that all of us have access to it on whatever level it is, and all of us have responsibility to actually learn it. So Rashi's picking up on that. The truth is, you know, Rashi's reading is based on a much earlier rabbinic interpretation, the famous 
Talmudic discussion in Baba Metzia. Are you referencing the famous Not in Heaven story? I sure am. All right, give us a quick rundown. So the quick rundown is there was a disagreement between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua concerning various points in halacha, particularly those that pertain to the laws of ritual purity and impurity. Ah, that oven that's like a snake. That's All right. All those problems. And Rabbi Eliezer was determined that the halacha is according to his view, and he summoned really heaven and earth in order to prove the point. So there were all of these miraculous events which happened that reinforced his opinion and supported it. And ultimately, there was a voice that issued from heaven that actually said, what are you doing? That's a pretty good proof. You can't get better than God that. is on your side. I wish that would happen when I argue with my wife or my kids, that I'd have that heavenly voice say, why are you arguing with your father? Don't you know the truth is with him all the time? You can try it. See I, what happens. Yeah, I should. Okay. So Rabbi Hoshua retorts to this really overwhelming display of divine approval of Rabbi Eliezer, a heavenly voice. And Rabbi Hoshua says, he quotes this particular passage, Lo The Torah is not in heaven. The Torah was given to human beings, and it's up to human beings to decide the halacha using the mechanisms that human beings use to decide things, which in this case means the majority rules. And in our context in particular, it has a double meaning of don't think you have to be a prophet or this holy person living in higher spiritual realms to figure out what the Torah wants from you. The Torah has been given to you, and you actually have the ability to figure out what God wants from you or from the Jewish people. We have those tools. I understand why Rashi reads the text this way. Moshe is telling the people, you have what you need to succeed. The excuses of it's too hard, it's too difficult, I can't understand it. Those excuses are not real. You're inventing them. But in fact, the Torah that I'm giving you is close, it's understandable, and it's been given over to you to figure out. Correct. And we have the responsibility to interpret it, to understand it, and to implement it as human beings do. Now, that's not to say that we don't have guidance. That's not to say that there isn't mechanisms of interpretation. But at the same time, the primary responsibility for figuring out life is ours. We have a lot of work to do in order to figure it out. Right? The answers may not be obvious, but they are attainable, or maybe even differently, any answer that we come up with, if we apply the right process, will be a good answer. Maybe that's another way to think of it, that in a way, our success in some ways is guaranteed if we take the right steps and bring the right intention and attitude to the process. And that's our role as human beings. So the, the Torah is divine, but the Torah is given to human beings. And therefore, it's human beings that ultimately have to determine its course. Okay, I'm completely convinced by Rashi, but you implied that there might be another opinion out there. So the truth is, Nachmanides Ramban also was completely convinced by Rashi until he wasn't. He begins his reading by saying, the mitzvah being referred to is the mitzvah of the entire Torah. But then he changes his mind. He says, actually, Hanachon, what appears to me is that really what we're talking about this particular mitzvah is the mitzvah of tshuva, not the mitzvah of the entire Torah. The mitzvah of tshuva, that's the context, says the Ramban, right? We spoke about the idea of striking a covenant with God. We spoke about the idea of failing to live up to those commitments. We spoke about the idea of having to somehow recover the way. Well, that's what tshuva is all about. 
Therefore, ha-mitzvah hazot that I'm commanding you today, it's not difficult, it's not far off, it's not miraculous, it's not in the heavens, it's not over the sea. What mitzvah is that? That's the mitzvah of tshuva. So, in a way, it is both broad and narrow, because on the one hand, it narrows in on tshuva, but obviously... Doing tshuva presumably would be embracing the Torah and what the Torah wants from us. Yes, with one very, very important difference, which I think the Ramban is alluding to. He's not explicit, but he's alluding to this idea. Kikarove lecha, this thing is very close to you. Beficha uvilvavcha asoto, in your mouth, in your heart, in order to do it. I just want to point out that when we talk about doing mitzvot, usually there's some kind of equipment involved. If I want to sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, I need a shofar. If I want to wear tefillin, which is a mitzvah, I need tefillin. If I want to study Torah, I need a text of Torah. Tshuva is one of those rare mitzvot where you don't need anything except sincerity. Which might make it harder. In other words, it might be all those mitzvot, even Shabbat that has a fixed time, all of these sort of delineations of either items or time or requirements may make it easier. This is just saying, hey, you got to change. You've got to repair and fix and change and become something else. And to say that that's right there in front of you, that is daunting. It's transcendent. It's not an accident. The rabbis say in the Midrash that tshuva is one of the things which was created, quote-unquote, before the world itself. The world is sort of predicated on this premise of being able to do tshuva. So daunting on the one hand, and yet absolutely accessible on the other. And you can do tshuva on a desert island, right? You don't need anything else. Just you and your heart and your mind and whatever process that might look like. You know, it's interesting when I'm thinking about that, and thinking about what's being asked here. There's, there's sort of two elements here. There's the theological element, which says, you know, God will forgive. That even though you've done something wrong and the sense of justice might demand punishment, God will forgive. There are second chances. That's sort of one piece of this puzzle that Moshe is telling the people, that even after you fail, you're going to have more chances and ultimately you're going to succeed. But on the personal level, this idea that we can actually change it is something that we pay lip service to. But I'm wondering how many of us have had the experience where we felt we really fundamentally changed or transformed. I'll illustrate with a both funny and sad story. I used to take on a practice before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur to write out the specific things I need to work on, right? To really try to lay out whether it's gossip or anger. I have a whole list, by the way, which isn't going to surprise anybody. But of all the areas that need work, and I remember one year as I was writing my list and putting in my list, my list in the previous year fell out of my machzor. And when I picked it up and I compared it to the list I was writing, Michael Hatton, what do you think I found? There may have been some common things on both lists. There wasn't a single distinction. The entire list. I don't believe that. Well, I'm telling you, I, I really think it was. That. It could be I wasn't working hard enough to get specific. And there was this moment of, oh gosh. And it's true. I've been working on these things for so long. I try to work on them, but there's this sense of, am I really getting anywhere? And I'm wondering when you read that Ramban and you read Moshe telling you 
you know, this is really doable for you. How does that sort of sit with the life experience of how hard it is to actually change? So I want to say two things about that. And I guess they're both inspired by Ruff Cook's treatment of tshuva in, um, in his Orota Tshuva. And Ruff Cook speaks about tshuva coming in different dimensions. There's a dimension of tshuva, which has to do with our physical health. If we are living a life which physically is not always the healthiest, then to change some of those behaviors is a form of tshuva. You know, if I eat too much chocolate and to eat less chocolate becomes a form of tshuva, you might say, I mean, is it really that significant? And the answer is yes, it is, because that's what tshuva is. So tshuva speaks to the most, you might say, minimal things. And there are deeper dimensions to it. So tshuva pertains to moral lapses, and the kind of decisions that I make on a moral level. Chuva pertains to my spiritual life and how I interact with God and with the world, with other human beings. Chuva pertains to not only me personally, but to the collective. The people of Israel have their own chuva. Humanity has its own chuva. The cosmos has a chuva. Right? So there's sort of this whole range of dimensions that I think it's important to note when we talk about this subject, because it's not just about me and my little struggles with life. There's something much bigger there. But how do you avoid that inevitable feeling of, either when you look out at the world and see the same problems and challenges emerging all the time. And maybe when you look at your own life or my life, because I don't think you have those problems and you see the same challenges emerging, like from where do you derive this sense of optimism that isn't sort of pulled back by almost natural look at the reality of our own lives and the world that we're in of the persistence of these challenges and problems? Your little list, Svi, is also the liturgy, as the case may be. As you know, the liturgy of the Amim Noraim, of the holidays at this time of year, ask us to reflect upon the kinds of mistakes that we make, and we read that list every single year, right? The Alchet list, it's the exact same list, and it's really a catch-all for the kinds of mistakes that we make vis-a-vis -vis other people, vis-a-vis -vis ourselves, vis-a-vis -vis God. It doesn't matter. We read it every single year. It's, just, it's the exact same list, right? So what does that tell us? I would say what it tells us is that tshuva is a dynamic process. And that's what Moshe is really saying as well. Coming back to the earlier theme, Moshe sees the inevitable, which is that the people are going to succumb to idolatry. It's a given, but at the same time, they can recover right? Will that recovery be permanent? Probably not. It's going to be an ongoing challenge. I would say the promise of tshuva is that tshuva gives us the hope that if we can't actually change, at least we can change temporarily. You know, that reminds me in the sense, one of the best things about studying Tanya gave me is that when he clarified that we can't fundamentally undo the negative impulses that we have. In other words, a lot of us get down on ourselves because we still want the same selfish or ego-driven things that somehow, even that we still want to eat the things that are bad for us, waste our time in things that don't help us, get angry when we know that we shouldn't. The impulses, he argues, are always there. The issue is in how we act. And he really suggests there that that's an area where we really can't change. We can't undo we can't become perfect people that don't desire negative things. 
We can't become people that don't have tempers, that don't have selfish urges, that don't want to put our own physical pleasure ahead of higher values. The wants and the desires are hardwired there, what he calls the nefesh behemoth, what others might call the survival instinct, the ego-driven instinct, whatever it might be, whatever your frame of reference is. The change can happen on the level of our behavior. We can act differently. We don't always have to respond to those impulses. So I think for me, it's been helpful to stop thinking that I can become this perfect person who really wants to do chesed and learn Torah and daven and do good things all the time and try to acknowledge I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to want to eat donuts and lay on the couch and watch Netflix. The question is in the coming year, can I reduce the consumption? Can I have some moments of victory where I don't give in to those things? And I found that both comforting and helpful and a lot more realistic. Like for me, that's what's not on the other side of the ocean. That's what's not in heaven. What is in heaven is me becoming in my kishka's Moshe Rabbeinu. That's not going to happen. But what is within my grasp is to find sort of small-scale changes or improvements in my behavior that maybe I'll have a little less road rage this coming year. Maybe I'll have a little more patience and won't lose my temper as readily. Maybe I'll even give a little more generously when the opportunity arises. What do you think? I think it's a great plan to start small for all of us. You know, the story is told of Rav Shach, who was a very well-respected rabbinic figure in the Haredi world. And he was assumed, of course, to be living a Torah-centered life. And his students asked him, what are you planning for the new year? And he said, what I'm planning this year is to recite the grace after meals from a birkan, from the booklet, rather than doing it by heart, because that's going to help me with my intention, with my kavanah. That's a way of saying start small, keep it manageable, and with those little successes, we can dream of bigger successes as well. So are you excited now that Rosh Hashanah is almost upon us and Yom Kippur right behind that? Are you excited? Are you overwhelmed? Do you feel daunted? Do you feel optimistic? Where are you as we speak right now? I'd say it's a combination of excitement, inspiration, and anxiety, which seems to be the theme of the season or the themes of the season. You know, I want to point out, maybe this is the reconciliation also between Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi wanted to argue that the mitzvah in question was the Torah. And we talked a little bit about that Gemara that said, Lo he, the Torah is in the hands of human beings. That was sort of that idea. And really what you're saying, Tzvi, and I think this is what we ought to be saying, is that tshuva is in our hands as well. What that means is we're human. And as human beings... It may not be successful all the time. It may not be successful any of the time. But what's really important is the aspiration. Because if we don't have an aspiration to grow and to improve and to make the world a better place, then what are we doing here? And I would say even beyond that, we actually have to have a real belief, this emunah, that it's possible. I think that at this point, what cynicism is probably our greatest obstacle these days, this belief that things don't really change, People are who they are. I am who I am. And the temptation just to sort of this misuse of the term acceptance. Well, I'm just going to accept who I am, what the world is, and I'm just not going to let it bother me. And there is a certain value in that. You don't want to walk around raging at the world or at yourself all the time. But there's also, I think, a temptation to just sort of 
stop trying and to be so onto the acceptance path that we're not trying to improve ourselves or the world around us. And I think we have to somehow live in that tension of not being angry and judgmental at others and ourselves all the time and obsess over all the ways we don't measure up. But at the same time, healthy aspirations and optimism that improvement indeed is possible. We can get better and be better, both individually and as a society. And I feel like some Moshe is somehow trying to tell us both of those things at the same time. As usual, Tzvi, I would say that you summed up the discussion beautifully, especially with Rosh Hashanah just around the corner. Yeah, it's a hard one. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is a hard one for a lot of us. I think you've given us a lot to think about, to be hopeful about. And when we read this Parsha, we got to let it speak to us a little bit and focus in. Moshe's sharing some wisdom here about what we can manage and what we can do. Well, thank you very much, Michael Hatton. This has been a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you, Tzvi, as always. Okay, so we, of course, want to wish you a Shana Tova, a happy, healthy, wonderful new year for you, your families, the Jewish people, the whole world, and find that balance between belief in ourselves and our ability to improve without too much harsh condemnation of the humanity that we all participate in. So on that note, please again look online for different Pardes programs for alumni that might be happening in your area or online. And of course, think about joining us in Jerusalem to study in our Beit Midrash. Shana Tova, Shabbat Shalom, and we look forward to uh, joining you the next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.